Hey everybody, welcome to the Be Better Tomorrow podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fisher. Today I am talking to Mr. Damien Sinodinos. For over 25 years, he's been helping people build better software and build software better through testing. He has a great background in technology, working for a ton of companies, but recently he started his own company, Ineffable Solutions, look it up if you don't know what it means, where he helps people learn fundamental people skills based on real world experience and supplemented with deep research, all wrapped up in skills he's learned in over 10 years of theatrical improvisation. But don't take it from me, listen to this conversation, I probably had more fun doing this show than I had any others in a while. Mr. Damien Sinodinos. David, I introduced introduced you in the intro, but why don't you go ahead and tell our guests a little bit about yourself. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jason. Um, Born and raised in central Ohio. I'm a diehard Buckeye fan, bleed scarlet and gray. Went to Ohio State University, didn't graduate. I dropped out when I was 19 years old, and that's where I started my IT career in software testing. As you mentioned, I got lots of software testing experience in IT and corporate world. I've got plenty of improv experience, over 12 years of uh, learning, performing, and teaching improv. Uh, theatrical improvisation. I'm a father twice over. I got two kids, Alina's seven and Zach is five. Yes, and those are wonderful ages for kids. They're they're still in, still madly crazy about you, and and they don't mouth off nearly as much. So I've got an 11 and a 13 year old, both girls. So, yeah, each age has its challenges, but uh, um, yep. I'm, I'm I'm these challenges are fun at this age. Yeah. So you and I actually share some of our IT experience, and we found out in in some of the pre conversations we had. We know a few yes. mutual folks. Um, but I was really interested in talking to you more about Ineffable Solutions, which is, I think, your, your side gig, right? Is that fair to say? Uh-huh. Why don't you tell uh, it's, us my, about it's my full-time job right now. It's oh, is company. it? Okay. Yes. Okay. I thought you were still doing some QA work there. Uh, no, I do it as it comes. If there's a consulting gig that comes along and it makes sense, I'll take it. But uh, Ineffable Solutions is my full-time job now. Good. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that is and, and what kind of work you do there? Certainly. Um, well, the way it came about is uh, a few years ago, maybe six, seven years ago at work, uh, I felt like I lacked meaning. Uh, I was making good money and the, the work was challenging and interesting, but it wasn't terribly meaningful. And so uh, I tried to seek more meaning in my nine to five and I jumped around a couple jobs and I wasn't finding it. I really found myself inflicting help at different companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, a mentor suggested that I go where people want to be helped. Uh, certainly a lot of people need it, but not everyone wants it. And so he suggested I speak at a conference. And so I put together a talk, speak to what you know. I put together a talk where I used improvisation to teach software testing. And uh, my very first conference was up in a, a Kitchener-Waterloo near Ontario, Canada. And it was very well received. That led to a second conference, a third, a fourth. And pretty soon I was traveling out of pocket around the country, around the world, speaking at conferences. And uh, it really had a lot of meaning because the feedback was wonderful. I felt like I was really uh, touching people professionally and personally. And then uh, I started getting paid for it. Uh, They would offer to pay for travel or accommodations or honorariums and stipends. And then uh, a few years ago, three years ago, I wondered if I could do it full time. So I quit my nine to five and I began Ineffable Solutions to become a full time professional public speaker and trainer. And as we said, I'll do consulting if it makes sense. All right. So I think the transition from, from the career that you knew into something that was, to your description, that has the meaning and the purpose that you're looking for is really interesting. Because I think a lot of us find ourselves asking those questions. Why do I not enjoy what I'm doing? Or how do I find more meaning in it? But don't understand how to make that transition. And I think QA and improv are maybe as far apart as you could start. <laughs> Yes. So can you give us a high level for people who don't know, 
a high level overview of what quality assurance and QA work is, because being from technology, I understand it, but about a lot of our listeners aren't. And then how you bring that together with improv skills to have it make sense. Absolutely. Sure. So any company that makes or creates or buys or uses software in any way, shape or form to either sell it as their product or service or use it to help sell their product or service, they need software testing. They need quality assurance. And what that is, is someone that basically provides information. I am a line of defense before it gets into the customer's hands. And I help explore, examine, poke, prod, experiment with the product and try and find problems, try and find risks and help mitigate those risks. And that's essentially what a software tester is. I'm testing computer software and trying to tease out the problems before the customer experiences those problems. So your job is to break things. In a sense, yes. To some now, degree. Exactly. To some degree, yes. I like to think that it's already broken and I find where it's broken. That's, so it's not me that's breaking it necessarily. Well, be, being more on the development side, I blame the users for anything that they break. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's def fair. Defending my developer friends. Yes, absolutely. So how in the world do you bring that together with improv? Let me, let me give a little backstory on this. When I got into improv, I was actually in IT and software testing and a coworker said to me one day, hey, come... Uh, come to my improv graduation ceremony. And I thought, what on earth? I don't even know anything about improv. Turns out the graduation ceremony was a public performance. Um, so I went and watched my coworker do improv up on stage. It was fantastic. And afterwards they said, you should really try this, Damien. So on a whim, I signed up and I trained under some Second City improvisers, uh, Second City trained improvisers for about a year. And at the end of that year, I also graduated and had a public performance. I went on to help found a troupe. We performed hundreds of shows over a few years. I joined with a more established troupe, performed many more hundreds of shows at comedy clubs and bars and theaters and corporate engagements. And another thing happened while I was doing all of this improv. I got married. I got married and then very quickly divorced. I'm remarried now with a lovely wife and two wonderful kids, but the first wedding and marriage did not last very long. It was very painful. And uh, this kind of life experience caused me to do some introspection, to look inward, to try and figure out what on earth just happened, what went wrong. Uh, this caused a lot of pain and I don't want pain anymore. So if I could figure out what caused the pain, maybe I could avoid it. And as I kind of introspected, I realized after some, some time that it was more about communication or miscommunication. That the things, you know, it wasn't about dirty dishes and laundry. It was about the fact that we weren't truly communicating with one another. So I thought in order to avoid future divorce and future pain, maybe I can become a better communicator. And so I thought about uh, becoming a better communicator, learning all I can to be a more effective, clear communicator. As I was doing this, I began to have uh, problems at work where I was becoming more enlightened during this introspection, not just personally, but professionally. And I, I had all my belief systems under the microscope. And I realized that a lot of the things I unquestioningly held to be true at work with regards to software testing and QA were not actually so. Under a bit of scrutiny, they fell apart pretty quickly. So I became more enlightened, say, with software testing as well. And I realized that communication or miscommunication not only affected my, my marriage, but also my work. And I realized that there was a lot of kind of core fundamental issues that uh, all of the problems I was experiencing at work were just symptoms. It didn't matter if I was in an airline or a bank or an insurance company or a retail company. All of the problems that I experienced, if you drilled down far enough, came back to like trust, lack of empathy, miscommunication, these really fundamental kind of issues. And so this is the period I spoke about earlier where I was uh, lacking meaning and trying to find ways to help others. 
And the way I put improv with it is I realized that all of these things, empathy, communication, trust, those are all things that I used on stage as an improviser. Those are all principles, skills, tenets of improv. And so I decided, wouldn't it be great if I could use improv as a fun way to teach these fundamental core concepts to testers? And then that led me to teaching it to a wider audience, to business analysts, to project managers, to executives. Uh, I wrote a book where I teach the very same thing to kids and children. So these kind of core fundamental um, ideas are applicable in a lot of different contexts in a lot of different ways. So long answer, but I think it covers exactly what you asked. Oh, it does. It does. So I think it's fair to say if I summarized, it, it's not as much about the improvisational skills as it is the communication and trust that you build doing those doing those activities. Is that fair? Exactly that. Yes. Okay. Improvisation is just a fun means of teaching fundamental core, perhaps boring things. <laughs> I find working as you know BA, as a BA or an iteration manager, whatever I'm doing, because I come in as a consultant, oftentimes it is my job to be the communicator. Um, I think oftentimes we, we work with a lot of assumptions. Like you said, we, we're coming into an environment day after day. We assume everybody knows exactly what the problem is or what I'm talking about, but we never make things explicit. Um, I think that maybe some of the things you're talking about when you, when you use those skills to help people understand what's going on, but can you drive towards some of those, some of the specific improv skills? I, like, I think we talked about, I have some background, but our, our audience probably doesn't. So you have to fill in what, what some of those things are. Sure. One of the most famous, well-known improv rules is yes and. And if you've ever heard anything about improv, you've probably heard the yes and rule. And when I say rule, what I really mean is guideline or principle or rule of thumb, air quote rules. Sure. Um, they're not algorithmic, they're heuristic. They're a way of approaching a problem uh, to solve it that may result in success, but also might fail. And some of these improv rules contradict other improv rules. And it seems paradoxical, but this is the way it works. They're just guidelines. So yes and is one of the, the most um, famous improv rules, and it's basically the idea of accepting and agreeing whatever is said on stage, whatever statement, whatever idea, whatever theme, and then adding on to that idea or concept. So yes, I agree, and I'm going to add a new idea to this ongoing thing. And what that helps the scene do is move forward. It shifts the spotlight around between actors and performers on stage. So the onus and the responsibility doesn't fall on one person's shoulders. It shifts around. And it also helps the scene kind of develop and grow organically. Now, this idea of yes and certainly helps improvisers on stage. But the idea of heuristically agreeing with what someone has said and then adding to that idea is a wonderful way of driving innovation. Whether you're a tester, whether you're a plumber, a circus performer, an executive, using the yes and rule. Uh, wisely, reasonably, can be a great way to drive uh, conversation, to drive uh, creation, innovation, to have others feel like they're being heard and valued. So that's just one example of how an improv rule, an improv principle or skill could be applied to a lot of different contexts in a practical way. Now, how do you use that when, you, when you're not necessarily looking for brainstorming kind of environment, but you're trying to maybe drive to a decision? Well, first of all, if, you, if it doesn't make sense to use it, don't use it. Uh, like again, heuristics, and they're not guaranteed to succeed. But uh, sometimes I think it can be used to drive to a decision. Um, sometimes it leads to a dead end, but you would not have discovered that it's a dead end unless you had used this yes and technique. Okay, that's fair. I've seen that used a lot of times in, in like I said, brainstorming or innovation kind of idea, idea brewing sessions where you don't want to shut somebody's thought process down. There's nothing more disconcerting than when you come up with an idea, especially when no one's talking, you're just trying to get things started. And there's always mm -hmm. that one person that just 
no, that's not a good idea. We can't do that. No, that won't yeah. work. Like that shuts the room down, man. Just say, yes, we'll move on. We'll cross it off later when we actually have a hundred ideas to pick from right now. We don't have anything. And uh, yes, I, I agree. Excuse me. Definitely brought that along to different environments to, to try to help people get moving and get the initial flow of ideas going. How have you found this to work mm -hmm. in the QA space? Well, one way that I apply it directly to software testing is the idea of agreeing with the previous thing that was said and adding to it. I, I apply it to software testing in a couple different ways. Uh, one is if I'm a performer on stage, I'm on stage with other performers, at least one or more other performers. And as I said, I say something and then they will agree with that and add on to it. Well, if I'm testing a software application, I might be by myself in front of a computer. Well, what if the application under test, the computer program that I'm testing is the other performer? And I ask it a question in that I'm, I interact with the product in some way. So I say, hey product, I'm gonna click this button. And the product responds, yes, you click this button and here's what happens when you click this button. I respond with this message. And then I'll agree with that. I say, ah, you respond with this message and I'm going to type this in this field. And the program says, ah, yes, you type this in this field. And when you type that, I will respond with this. And so in a sense, I'm interacting, just like with a performer on stage, I'm interacting with a computer application. And it allows me to generate many, many different tests ideas from just one single idea. I start with one idea. What happens if I click this button? And by interacting with the application, pretending it's a performer and yes anding, it will help me drive and generate new test ideas to help me test the application. Okay, so you can build like an entire chain of if-then statements and, and build upon that, like for one entire train of thought. Exactly that. Very but yes. And so that's a, that would be a, a neat way, for, I think, for folks who maybe are working on a, on a side hustle or trying to understand what they want to do or how to do something to do that yes interaction with themselves in, for, in, in as far as making any plan uh, along the line. It doesn't have to be software development. It could be, um, I'm going to do this podcast. Yes. And when mm -hmm. I do this podcast, I want to talk to interesting people. Yes. And I want to make sure that those people are experts in what they do so that I'm learning as I do it. So it's interesting to me as well. And go build that whole concept out. One of my offerings, uh, I have offerings called improve with the E in parentheses. So it can be read improv or improve. Uh, so it's called improve your testing where I relate improv principles and skills to software testing. Another one's called improve your requirements where I relate those very same improv skills and principles to requirement elicitation and analysis, BA work, business analyst work. I have another offering called Improve Your Communication, where I take the same improv principles and skills, but this time I'm relating them to communication, becoming a better communicator. But I have another one called Improve Yourself, where I take the principles and skills of improvisation, the yes and and all the others that I've identified, and I get in front of any crowd and I describe what a particular improv principle or skill is, such as yes and, and then I ask someone in the crowd, anyone, raise your hand and tell me what you do. And invariably, no matter who raises their hand and no matter what they do, I'm able to correlate that principle, that improv principle or skill to the, their job, to something that they do in their job. That's how widely applicable the principles and skills of improvisation are. I can improvisationally work with any crowd, with any context, any roles and responsibilities and find ways that these improv principles apply to them. Okay. So I would be remiss if I didn't take this challenge. So uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a podcaster. All right. What, All right how, so how, would I, how would I do it? I'll use, how about this one? Here's another improv uh, principle and skill, listening. It sounds kind of obvious, but 
something that improvisers practice uh, very frequently is their listening skills. And it doesn't just mean listening to the message. The message is a small part of what's uh, being communicated to another person. Um, if you're face to face, there might be body language, there might be facial uh, cues, uh, furled brow, uh, sweat. There's also voice, tone, volume, pitch. There's all sorts of extra subtext that can be built into a message that is part of the entire thing that's being communicated to someone. So as an improviser, you wanna be whole body listening in the moment so that you don't miss any part of the message trying to be communicated to you. So I would say as a podcaster, I would suggest that listening is also very important. Now we're not face to face right now. I can't see you, you can't see me. So some part of the message is being lost which means you have to be more attuned to other parts. You have to listen to the tone and the pitch of my voice, how fast I'm speaking. Am I interrupting? Am I pausing? All of these things can influence the message, the thing that I'm trying to get out of my head and into yours. And as a podcaster, the better you are at listening and identifying those things, saying, oh, he just paused. Is he thinking or is he allowing me to speak now? The better you are at listening, the better podcaster you will be. How's that? That's great. That's great. All right. Hey, I passed. It goes right back to uh, when I started this, I, was, I listened to some videos of Larry King talking about how he's done his job for the last uh, got 60 years or however long he's been on the air. And it, mm -hmm. his message really was about listening. He, he listens and asks the question you know, based on what they just said. He's not jumping yes. to a new topic. He's responding and reacting to the things that they said and what they're interested in. And you can tell that by their words, by their inflection like you said, by their pace, people talk faster when they get excited about something. And mm -hmm. that gave him the opening to know exactly where he needed to push and prod to get the really great interviews that he's famous for. Yeah, absolutely. That's so great. You passed. Good to, good to know that Larry's on the same, same page as me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So you can at least say you've got the same mindset as one of the greatest interviewers of all time when it comes to <laughs> a particular area. And so do you do these mostly in corporate settings or conference settings? Or where do you get most of your opportunities to, to give these lessons? My first conference was at a software testing specific conference. At the beginning, that led to other software testing conferences. The software testing conferences eventually got me an invite to a more general uh, development conference. So it wasn't just people that test software, it was also people that make software and people that think about software and people that manage the making of software, a general development conference, because my message is generic, uh, generic and general enough to apply to not just software testers. And then after being at some development conferences, I started getting invited to some non-tech, non-development conferences. Uh, again, because my message, uh, often many of my offerings are applicable not just in a corporate or technical environment, they're applicable to anyone anywhere. Uh, my most recent talk is called More Than That, and it's really a motivational, inspirational talk that's intended to help people reevaluate and recognize their true and future potential value, you know, who they are right now and who they can be, less about what you do and more about who you are. That's the type of talk that can be given to any conference anywhere. And I do a lot of these conferences and conventions for visibility and credibility. Now, the main reason I do it is to help people improve, but another reason I do it is for visibility and credibility. And the model is that people will hopefully see me at these conferences and conventions and they'll say, can you come do one, two days of training at my company? And that's where I do the corporate training and workshops. Nice. It's a nice path. I've, I've heard a lot of uh, professional speakers doing very similar things, but it's nice mm -hmm. to have a topic that can, that can help people as well as, you know, kind of get your name out there. Um, Cause at the end, if you're not really working for your audience, you're, you're kind of missing the point, I think. Yes. 
I gave a talk at a conference last Friday, uh, the Star Trek conference. And the title of it was called The Hidden Requirements, Exploring Emotions with Placebos. And generally the, uh, the idea of this talk is that beyond all the functional requirements, the things that software should do or the performance requirements, the, the things that software should be and how it should perform, it's very important to also consider how software makes users feel, the emotional requirements of our software. And in my pretty extensive experience, 25 years of helping build software, it has been vastly ignored. Um, people don't concentrate on the emotional requirements. So I talk a lot about the importance of emotional requirements and considerations in software. And then I use placebos as a lens to view software. Now, at the end of the talk, people were coming up to talk to me and one woman came up and said that she was dealing with some things personally in her life and with her daughter. And some of the things I said meant a lot to her. That was very meaningful to me, number one, but it also shows that the things I'm talking about ostensibly are about building software and about requirements, but really they're much deeper than that. And that's kind of the way it goes for most of my talks. Although I'm relating things to business analysts or testing or whatever context I'm in, these are really, really fundamental core ideas that are applicable in a lot of different contexts. And I think that's the, the beauty of a, of a good message. It's, it's not just about the surface level thing that you're talking about, but it can, it can touch people in a deeper way that has a long-term effect on their life. Like any of us who, yeah. who dabbled in the public speaking space or even, even performing, sometimes it's about the good laugh, but I can remember going to, you know, not just stage shows, but improv shows where a joke went off so well that even the, you know, even the participants didn't intend it to go so, go so well that we all stop and laugh for a few minutes till they have to get back on. Yes. Now we have to stop. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that, but we'll get serious again. Kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Just remember those moments because it, it was something you all shared together. It's something deeper than yes. just the, the surface performance. Yes. I've got a few of those stories myself and you're right. They are some of my favorites. Yeah. Cause sometimes you just have to have fun for you and it's about making your friends crack up on stage because <laughs> those are great times. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially if you if you've done I think I used to do more sketch and stage performance, and you've done the same thing a dozen times. Now you just have to entertain yourself, mm -hmm. and so you throw throw a new word out there just to mess with somebody. And if you I ever was I was hosting an improv show one night, uh, and we would take turns performing and introducing the next game and the next uh, the next scene. And so it was my turn to introduce. And so my fellow performers were behind me waiting to uh, waiting to start the game. So I explained how it worked to the audience. And I said, now, before we begin, I do need some help from the audience. I need an occupation. And someone yelled out, doctor. And I said, no, 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 something more unusual, something creative. And then people started yelling, yell, lawyer, accountant, mechanic. I said, keep it coming, keep it coming, more creative. And so the cacophony of suggestions grew louder and louder and louder. And it went on and on and on. And I kept gesturing to the crowd for more and more, more creative. And then I didn't even speak anymore into the microphone. I was just using my hand, waving at them, keep coming, keep coming. And like microwaved popcorn, how it grew to a crescendo and then slowly started to taper off until it was just a suggestion here. And then someone else would yell a suggestion there. And it went on an unreasonably uncomfortable amount of time. And I finally said, now I think I heard doctor. <laughs> and the audience laughed so hard the performers on stage lost it and we didn't even end up doing the game because they knew they couldn't beat that laugh yeah right <laughs> which is a little disappointing but you got to enjoy it all the same yeah and that was one of those just off the cuff moments that uh i really enjoy let's drive back around to some of the other techniques that you use we talked about yes and listening with the whole body 
what other what are some other things you can share with us that we could take away and use in our, our professional and personal lives? Well, these are principles and skills. So some of them are skills, things that you can learn and develop. I talked about yes and and listening. That uh, questioning is another one. Uh, proper on stage when you're an improviser, when to ask questions, and if you do ask a question, what type of question is appropriate. And I use that as a launching pad to talk about the same thing in different contexts, different types of questions when it's appropriate to ask them. Another is something I add on to yes and, I call it explore and heighten. So yes is agreeing with what was just said and is adding something to it. But what do you add? Well, you can add something that is surreal or something that's sublime. It doesn't really matter what you add, it will help the scene move forward. And sometimes adding something that's very reasonable, something that's very um, logical to the scene will help it move forward. But sometimes saying something completely bizarre can also take the scene in an unexpected direction. So exploring and heightening on someone else's idea is sometimes a technique or a heuristic that can be useful in a lot of different contexts. Some others are less skills and more principles. One is the importance of rehearsal. Uh, while there's no plan in improv, when you get on stage, you don't have a plan for what you're going to do. Improvisers are some of the most prepared people you'll ever meet. One of the reasons I don't actively perform anymore is not because I can't make the shows, it's because I can't make the practice. With children and the, just the daily grind of, of having kids, uh, I can't afford to go to practice as often as I, I should, and I don't want to uh, cheat my fellow performers. But improvisers practice and practice and practice and rehearse and rehearse yes. and rehearse so that when they get on stage, they reach for the right tool at the right time automatically. It's really intuitive. So, they don't have to think about, oh, I should say yes and then and. It just comes automatically, and that comes from practice. So obviously, I use that to tell people with any skill, no matter what it is, communication is a skill. The more you practice, the better you'll get, just like an improviser. Exactly. Let's rest on that a little bit because I think this is super important. Oftentimes, people see successful people, people who have a skill that has been developed for years and you don't see the, the years of development, you just see the success they are today. Yes. And you don't realize that there's so much work that went into that ahead of time. I joined, yes, I completely agree. I, I joined Toastmasters three or four years ago, but I came to it with 20 years of stage experience. And so people would, you know, they see me and they're like, oh, this I wish I could do what you do. And I'm like, you can, you just need to exercise these skills like I have. Get up and talk every time you get a chance. I was a ham as a kid. I wanted to be the center of attention. I wanted to perform. I used those skills to be obnoxious as a kid, but learned how to focus that energy as an adult. And it built on those skills that I know how to tell a story. I know how to get in front of people. I know how I'm communicating effectively and when I'm not from years of, of teaching a youth group. I could tell when they're not paying attention when I've lost them because I exercised that skill of reading the audience. I've seen uh -huh, so many uh -huh. boardroom meetings where the audience is lost and not paying attention. And it's almost like the speaker is oblivious because they've never uh -huh. practiced that skill of, of honing with, of playing with the audience, learning to, to interact with them without actually interacting just with your eye contact, with the questions or the, the pauses that grab their attention. There's so much to be done there, agree. with that practice and preparation that gets you ready to really be where you want to be. I completely agree. I informally do what you do more formally. I, I sometimes help uh, new, newer speakers uh, with their talk. Oftentimes people have an important uh, message, but that's lost in the form and the format and the delivery. I recently worked with, uh, sometimes it's just they, they're happy with their talk, their presentation style, and they just want me to redo their deck and I'll hand draw slides. But sometimes they want help actually developing a good talk into a great one. I recently worked with a mother-daughter team that had a really inspiring story about 
creating a code camp for uh, young Nepalese refugee girls where they could come and learn uh, basic computer skills. And just hearing the story is a five out of 10. Anyone would be inspired by this story. But a five out of 10 is, is a neat story, but it's not really conference ready. And so I worked with this mother-daughter team for months, helping them with a hook and bookends and developing, uh, inserting emotion into it, not just figures and statistics, but why does it matter to them? And why did they choose this solution over a different solution? And what was the problem anyway? And the structure and the style, and I created a slide deck for them. And now they give the same talk at conferences and get standing ovations. They've taken a good talk and, and now it's great. It's, it's a nine or a 10 out of 10. Because of the effort and the practice they put in ahead of time. And exactly. And, and, and those skills that they're learning to develop, reading the audience, being able to adjust and pivot. Yeah, I don't think people who've never who've never really been on stage understand the crowd interaction that is happening, even when it doesn't look like there's any crowd interaction. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's lots. Yes, yeah, there is because you can see the guy yawning. You can see, okay, I'm losing them. I need to change my tack here a little bit, or everyone looks confused. I need to re-explain that point. And if you just moved on, you've lost them. But if you exactly. can read them and go, okay, that didn't work. How can I explain that differently? Let me try this again. I see it dawning now. Okay, I can move on. And now you've, you've communicated much more effectively than you would have otherwise. And it's interesting because you're mixing skills there. You're not only reading the audience is one type of skill that you can develop and get better at. But if you read the audience and realize, I don't think they got it, you might have to switch to a different skill, which is paraphrasing. That's a skill that needs to be practiced. Not everyone can say the same thing in three different ways. You know, some people will just keep repeating the same thing over and over. But if you can paraphrase or perhaps use an analogy or a metaphor is another different type of skill. So you read the audience, that's skill number one, and say, uh-oh, they're not getting it. Skill number two is I'm going to paraphrase and say the thing I just said in a different way. They're still not getting it. Skill number three, I'll use a metaphor. In this context, maybe talking about cooking or skiing will help this idea land with them. Skill number three, and you're mixing and matching all these different skills to help better communicate. Yeah, I think one of the things we talked about in one of our pre-calls was restating the idea as one of the skills that you teach. It sounds mm -hmm. like you're, you're kind of hitting on that right now if you want to touch on it a little more. It's one of the things I recommend to people is, uh, well, when people say, okay, how can I avoid or perhaps reduce miscommunication? My number one uh, suggestion is ask. Now, because of social norms, that's often one that's more difficult for people. They don't want to ask for because they don't want to seem stupid or embarrassed or for whatever reason. Sometimes asking, which is oftentimes the most effective, can also be the most difficult. But after that, I have a whole series of different things that people can try, and one is restating. If someone says something and you're not quite sure, say, let me say that back to you, and you repeat back to them what they said, but in different words. And if they say, no, that's not what I meant, whew, great, you've just avoided miscommunication because you've, you've identified that you did not get their message. But if you say it back to them and say, yes, they say, yes, that is what I meant, then great. Then you can continue on the conversation safe knowing that, uh, that you're on the same page. Communication is all about moving and transferring ideas from one head to another. And it's never gonna be 100%, but the closer you can get, the more effective your communication will be. So restating is one way or asking them, hey, I noticed that your brow is furled. Can you try and restate what I just said and have them do the same thing in reverse? There's a lot of ways to start that off that make it a little easier. It's, so what I'm hearing you say is it's easy to restate something back to somebody to make sure that you've been understood or they've understood you. Yes, and you just did it. <laughs> exactly. You just start with that little statement. What I'm, so what you're saying is, well, what you're saying is can kind of put words in it. What I'm hearing you say, yes. what I'm hearing is, and that puts the onus on you because 
communication is what you meant, what you said, what they heard, and what they inferred. I agree. There's uh, Virginia Satir has a wonderful interaction model. There's a lot of different models for communication, and many of them build on previous models, and most of them have uh, small, subtle differences, but most of them, there's a sender and a message, and it's encoded and sent through some kind of channel, and there might be noise interfering with that channel, and then it's received by a receiver, and they decode the message, and that's where Virginia Satir, and all sorts of things can go wrong in that process I just described. Oh, sure. Even if everything goes well, Virginia Satir's model talks about the intake of the message. That person's past experiences, their ideology, their belief systems, their understanding, they apply all of that into the message and it can influence their interpretation and and meaning uh, and you have no control over that. Right. You can't affect what they do in their head with your message unless you ask them to restate back to you and then you can confirm that that the message was, was received correctly. That's correct. Yes, absolutely. I, can't I sometimes think that communication is almost miraculous that anyone can communicate with anyone else using these rudimentary words that we've come up with to represent ideas and flailing our arms about to try and make the message richer and drawing pictures and sculpting to try and, and help our eyes and give us more input. It's almost miraculous that anyone can communicate with anyone else ever. It really is because with the context you're from, the context I'm from, things may mean completely different things. You may be communicating something with your body language that I don't, that I didn't, or you didn't mean to, but that I'm interpreting differently. I think sometimes part of my job as a consultant is just to come in to be the new guy who can go, hey, I'm sorry, I'm new and dumb here. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Can you explain that again? And then I'm, I learned that people who've been there for years don't really understand the thing that I'm asking about. And they're happy that I asked. Yes. Because people have just been going with the assumption forever. And I'm able to come in and go, oh, you guys just really have a communication problem. You wouldn't have to pay me if you just talked to each other. <laughs> and something you mentioned about assumptions and, and having difficulty communicating with someone that might have been at a workplace for a little bit longer than you or you longer than them. That can cause miscommunication because of assumptions and presumptions and cognitive biases. And I also think that there's a that contributes to a lot of the state of the world right now. The internet has made instantaneous uh, communication and feedback worldwide. I can communicate with somebody in China or Zimbabwe or Alaska instantaneously. Now, I used to know my neighbors and my family pretty well and I could communicate with them because I roughly understood their experiences, their background, their upbringing, their ideologies and belief systems. And when I communicated with them, those things were all built into my understanding and their interpretation. But now I can communicate with somebody in China that I don't understand how they grew up, what their experiences are, what they believe in, yet somehow I'm still expected to communicate with them. But we both have tons of assumptions that are affecting, and I think that the internet is, for all of its wonders and benefits, it's also very detrimental. It allows people to miscommunicate faster than we ever have before. That's true. And I don't know that a lot of people have recognized that yet. And so we were having a lot of miscommunications. I've, I've stopped getting involved in conversations for the most part on most social medias that aren't, mm-hmm. that aren't really targeted to people that I know because oftentimes you'll say something and then the next four posts are mis, misconstruing what you said. And it's like, I, I don't have time to sort this out. And because we're not face-to-face having that real-time interaction where we can read one another and you can actually realize I'm a human being, mm-hmm. we, we can't have a good conversation. Exactly. I think there's there's some changes in our norms happening that can hopefully work that out. But in the meantime, I think a lot of people are learning how to communicate mainly online and not in person. And it 
it is changing the way we do things. And I don't know, I agree, I don't know that it's for the better. I think that the proliferation of uh, emojis and memes are one way that people are trying to become better at online communication. Rather than just use words to describe how they feel or what they think, they're using images uh, to, to get across an idea. So I don't have to tell you with words, I can't even find the right words. My vocabulary is too small and I'm not sure that you'd understand the words, but you know what you do understand? An animated GIF. Yes. Yes, and I think people are re reaching for those types of methods to become better communicators, but I also think there's a lot of limitations with that as well. It's richer in some ways, but not as rich in others. Well, because those gifts have content as, or context as well. So if I don't yes. understand, if you do, a, if you put a movie up that I'm supposed to understand the reference, exactly. but I don't know the movie, that doesn't help. Exactly. I, there's been a lot of a lot of those memes that go around. Like I've never seen the original. I don't know where it comes from, but I I've been around the internet long enough to go. Oh, I understand what you're saying now. Yep. I get that. And it is becoming kind of its own language and its, its own culture of communication, which yes. isn't my area of expertise, but it's, it's very interesting because we're, we're able to watch it emerge now live in front of us. Yes, this is a, a fascinating time to be an armchair linguist. Do you find you have to unwind some of those things, um, helping people not to be, you know, not to have Facebook conversations at work or in their personal lives? Not like online, not really on Facebook conversations, but not to use those same tendencies in real life conversations. Uh, can you say the question in a different way, please? Yeah. Do you, are you finding that you're helping people undo some of the negative things we've talked about that come from social media and their real life communication? Uh, I don't think yet. It's not something that I've dipped my toes in yet. I've done a lot of thinking and I've, I've really started to do some research in that area because I think it's important and it's changing and it's going to be very, very relevant. Uh, but it's not something I've wrapped into my teaching or training yet. Okay. The closest I've come, I'm working on a talk now called, Is This Joke Appropriate? And uh, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with this. It was in, originally intended to be a TED-style talk. You have my attention. <laughs> it, it, I think it has enough meat to be longer than 8 or 12 minutes. I, I could probably do an 8 or 12-minute version of it. But the general idea is, I was interested a few years ago when uh, a Saturday Night Live writer got in trouble on Twitter for making fun of Barron Trump. A lot of people took her to task and said, you don't tease kids. You don't make fun of kids. They're off limits. Uh, she, so she got raked over the coals in the, in the public eye. And I started looking up other, there just happened to be a few other notable uh, people that got in trouble for making Twitter jokes. And I started to wonder, look at all these inappropriate jokes that people are making online. So I started doing some research and I found all sorts of examples where the consequences were unexpected, undesired. So somebody made a joke and what they hoped for was either for the, you know, the audience to laugh, to be amused. Maybe they had an agenda and they were hoping to raise their status. They wanted something to happen, but what ended up happening was something undesired. It could be like the crowd did not laugh or they got fired from their job or they got hu uh, publicly humiliated. I found cases where children had killed themselves because of pranks that their uh, fellow students. So inappropriate jokes led to a suicide. So everything from trivial to catastrophic results then I started thinking about, well, what is an appropriate joke? What makes one joke appropriate and another joke inappropriate? And who gets to decide that? And I looked at it philosophically. I looked at it pragmatically. And I realized that I myself use a little framework that helps me. It's not an algorithm. Again, it doesn't spit out an answer, but it helps me better decide whether the joke I'm about to tell is appropriate or not. And it basically looks at the content of the joke the audience that I'm going to tell it to, how much do I know about their upbringing, background, ideology, the context, other environmental factors. I think about the 
intentions. Why am I telling this joke? I think about the potential interpretations and the likelihood of each. This is the most likely way that this joke will be interpreted, but it might also be interpreted this way, that way, or the other way. And then the ramifications, if it's interpreted any of those different ways. If it's interpreted this way, great. If it's interpreted that way, uh-oh. If it's interpreted another way, it's not that bad. And I take all of these factors into consideration, and I decide in the end whether or not to tell the joke. That's now an that's awful a lot. lot of work to do for an improv guy. It's a lot of work, but I, practice makes perfect. I talked about rehearsal, and I realized I've been doing this informally for years, and it's become automatic. It's something that I quickly am able to do in just milliseconds. I'm about to tell a joke, and I glance around. I think, why am I telling this? Who am I telling it to? Nah, I better not tell that joke. Or, yeah, I think it's okay to tell this joke. And it's something that I, I'm able to do very, very quickly because of practice. Now, whether you're quick at it or not, the results of it might be very important. Even if it takes you a few minutes to process it, maybe it's so important so you don't get fired from your job or publicly humiliated or cause a classmate to kill themselves. So it's very, very important that we take time, whether quick or a lot of time, to consider whether the joke you're about to tell is important. And the way that I end this talk is I take the word joke out of the title and I replace it with comment or question or outfit or anything. You can put any word in there. Is this blank appropriate? And you can use the same framework to help you decide. So it's a very versatile, useful framework to help make the world a better place. I can see how that would be definitely helpful. Um, I, I think we don't give people room to practice that technique. So everyone is stuck erring on the side of being very conservative for the, the level of consequences that are coming out that are terribly disproportionate to the crime, as it were. I agree. Um, and I think that I listen to a lot of comedians talk about this, you know, who have their own podcast, and mm -hmm. they're always going over this, this overreaction to this joke or this overreaction to this joke. No comedian or even a person really, I don't, or there are some people. So I'll, say, I'll stick with the, the comedians in us. We don't make jokes hoping they're not funny. We believe they're funny. Yes. But they may be funny to us. They may be funny to other people. I'm, I'm sure in your groups, you're sometimes... You're, you'll you'll make a joke in practice and you go, oh, no, that was too far. You cannot do that in public. Yeah. And okay, you're right. That's the practice. But now I know I'm in a safe place to make that mistake yeah. where, where we're not going to be judged and we can exercise that skill. And it's almost like the gym for that kind of skill set. Uh, Again, I think that this, this framework can help in a lot of different contexts with people deciding whether to ask this question or make this comment or wear this outfit or whatever the case may be. But I'm a lifelong student of comedy. As they say, I, pointing a joke is like dissecting a frog. Um, you understand it better, but it kills them both. Yeah. If you've ever heard that. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I like to dissect and understand humor. There's a great book called Inside Jokes by philosopher Daniel Dennett and a few other authors that really kind of dissects the idea of humor and mirth and what makes us laugh at a very psychological neuroscience level, uh, philosophical level. Uh, this, this is fascinating to me. Um, two very famous uh, funny people, Jerry Seinfeld and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who were both famously on Seinfeld, come mm -hmm. down on opposite sides of the fence. Where Jerry thinks that um, because of slippery slopes, and if I draw a line, then that gives everyone else the ability to draw their own line. He thinks that everything should be appropriate. You should be able to say anything you want as long as it's funny is his one criteria. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, on the other side, argues the opposite. She thinks that people should err towards caution and that some things uh, are inappropriate to joke about at any time. So it's very interesting to see two people that I both have hold in very high regard have such different opinions on this. And certainly, if you look at this kind of issue from a philosophical 
standpoint versus a pragmatic practical standpoint of the real world that we live in that does not necessarily go by theory or philosophy, uh, you come to different conclusions. Absolutely. We could talk about theory all day long. I'm still not telling a questionable joke at work. Yeah, exactly. And it's exactly. just for that context and the, you know, it may get a laugh. It may also get me fired. That risk is not worth it. And I yes, think that's and exactly. You can argue slippery slopes and, and all that. It doesn't matter. It's kind of the, I think the framework you're talking about. Yeah. It's interesting. A lot of people think they can just go up there and, you know, be funny because they were a class clown and they mm. don't realize the, the kind of work and, and introspection that goes into really crafting five minutes. Even five minutes that is really solid takes a long time of going through. I, I just listened to an interview with Kevin Hart on the Joe Rogan show, and he takes like three years to get to his hour. <laughs> uh -huh. and he's going out and doing it every night, honing it and making it better and tweaking things and, and rewriting an hour. And this is an, another thing with the rehearsal and the practice. Oftentimes, if you hear a comedian say, uh, I went to the mall the other day and I went to um, uh, the Gap. That um, um, and that pause, it's not because they forgot where they went. They weren't searching in their mind for the name of the retail outlet. They, they knew it was the gap, but the um, 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 that's part of the cadence, part of the pause, part of the buildup. It's very, very practiced. Every beat is, is planned and intended. Yeah. It, the first time I ever heard, I think it was on the, the Blue Collar Tour, where they would do what was supposedly their ad-libbing at the end Q&A and I heard it from two different recordings where it was the same jokes with the same beats and I was like oh I get it <laughs> that, yes. they planned those little numbers on each other that's funny okay got yes, it yes yes but that takes practice tons and tons and tons of practice and rehearsal yes and just trial and error sometimes to figure out what works and then to practice that thing that worked and keep pushing through and yeah well you know bring it right back around for all these skills that you're talking about you have to find you know pick one practice it become fluent in it add another mm -hmm. Where, you know, figure out what's appropriate in which situations if you're more in a brainstorming session the yes and is perfect mm -hmm. if you're more in a like for me a requirement session i probably need to listen and, and hear what's important to people and, and lean into that and understand where the conflicts are because i can see this guy tense up when he says this thing there's history there yes how do i get into the middle of that and so reach for the right tool at the right time and be natural about it make it intuitive automatic all right. Is there anything else you'd, you'd like to tell us about? Well, the other thing I've, uh, I'm pretty proud of is I self-published a book uh, last year. Uh, it's called Hank and Stella and Something from Nothing. And uh, you can go to hankandstellabooks.com to learn all about the book. But it is essentially taking a lot of the things I've spoken about, the improv principles and skills, and it's teaching them to kids. We're a reading family. My kids love to read, and I love to read to them. And after reading hundreds and hundreds of books to my kids... I kind of wondered, hmm, I wonder if I can write a book of my own. And so I thought, write to what you know. I know a lot about improv, and I want it to be enjoyable and educational. There's lots of books that my kids have that are plenty of fun, but they don't really have a, an educational message. And they also have some educational books that are really boring to read. So I want it to be both, like a cereal that tastes good and is also good for you. And so I made the book to introduce children to the principles and skills of improv, the same things I teach to testers and executives at conferences and corporations all around the world. I'm introducing kids to the principles and skills of improv through cute little characters, Hank and Stella, a dog and a bunny. On a boring gray rainy day, they decide to put on a show and, and Stella explains to Hank all the principles of improv. And at the end, they invite the, uh, the reader to join them in a show and it has a few simple improv games for kids to get started making improv shows of their own. It's been a blast. I've done some author visits at local schools where I've spoken to classes of 20 or assemblies of 400. 
and I read the book to them and we play some improv games that helps exemplify the different ideas in the book. And uh, it's been a lot of fun, but it just goes to show that the very same ideas are so widely applicable that kids from five to 10 years old can benefit from them just as executives and plumbers and architects and technologists. And you may have just answered this, but the age range on your book is about five to 10? About five to 10, that's right. Okay. Yep. Hank and Stella Books, we'll put that link in the show notes since so people can pick that up. Great, thank you. Take a look at it. Yeah, any, anything else before we close out? That's all. I okay. really appreciate this chat. It, it, uh, this game, it was very easy to talk to you. We have a lot of the same interests and uh, you are a wonderful listener. Well, thank you very much. I have one last question that I've been asking all of my guests. What are you doing today to be better tomorrow? <laughs> okay. I was, I was expecting this one because I did do, as a proper improviser should, I prepared and I listened to <laughs> episodes. It's a wonderful question, though. I think just generally I'm, I'm learning, and it seems like a cop-out, but I believe that learning every single day, a little bit or a lot, is essential to growing and being better. Um, I have an entire blog post I wrote about it on my website, uh, How I Learn, and it lists just a handful of the things that I do when I'm trying to get deeper understanding. But I'll give a better, uh, less cop-out answer, something more specific that I'm learning at the moment. Um, in a couple weeks, I'm going to be doing improv training for a group of middle and high school students at the Ohio State School for the Blind. Um, it's a three-week program. I'm going to teach them some of the same improv uh, principles and skills. And so one of the things I'm learning now are different techniques and things I should be aware of when teaching uh, folks that are blind or visually impaired. So that's something that I'm learning today to be better tomorrow and more prepared. Excellent. Damien, thank you very much for your time. This has been really fun and hopefully really educational for me, hopefully for, the, for any of our listeners as well. I'll put all of your links in the, in the show notes so people can find you, but you want to go ahead and tell us really quick where the best place is to go, your website, maybe? Absolutely. Ineffable-solutions.com. Ineffable is I-N-N-E-F-F-A-B-L-E. And if you're not sure what it means, you can go to the website to find out. Uh, the other book website is hankandstellabooks.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Be Better Tomorrow podcast. As always, you can check us out at bebettertomorrow.com. This is a very special month and I need your help. Head over to columbuspodcastawards.com. Vote for Be Better Tomorrow in the entrepreneur category. Vote for Reading Radio in the art category. That's my daughter and I's podcast. If you've never checked that out, it's reading-radio.com. Hit up by imitation only in the business category. And then, of course, vote for Reading Radio for podcast of the year. Because if one of somebody in my family is going to win, I want it to be my daughter. Columbuspodcastawards.com. The music you're listening to is by Kevin McLeod of Incom Tech. It's called District 4, and it's released under the Creative Commons license, as is Be Better Tomorrow. So feel free to use any portion of the show, as long as you give us credit. Check out all of our social media links at BeBetterTomorrow.com, and we'll talk to you next month. <laughs>